But I remember making mixtapes for a girlfriend in the mid '90s, where I sort of wanted to convert her to my way of music. Yeah, they were they were sort of <laughs> passive aggressive mixtapes, you know, where I thought that coercive. Right. Yeah. She, she listened to to Cat Stevens and the Muppet Movie soundtrack, and I thought you really need cooler music. And so, in retrospect, it's like how condescending was it for me to to send her these these tapes, thinking that it would you know make her taste better. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today's episode dates back to three years ago when, during a visit to New York, I interviewed this guy. My name is Zach Taylor. I am a New York-based independent filmmaker. I recently finished a documentary called Cassette, a documentary mixtape. It's about the history, the influence, the importance of the cassette tape. Zach's film features interviews with rock icons like Henry Rollins and Thurston Moore, as well as a man named Lou Ottens, a Dutch engineer who died this year at age 94 and who literally invented the cassette tape back in the 1960s. Here's an outtake from the trailer. Cassette, like, was your gateway into creativity. Cassettes didn't play a role in hip-hop in the early days. Cassettes were hip-hop. There was no rap radio, there was no video, there was nothing. And there's something about that electric sound that is amazing. For me, it was as good as it gets. This documentary film, which is kind of a love letter to cassette tapes, is now available on Amazon Prime, and I think it's terrific. But in the weeks and months and now years since I talked to Zach in New York, I've come to realize that our interview didn't fully evoke my own fascination with cassette tapes. And in fact, to truly explore my own affection for this bygone technology, I would have to recut it with interviews of other people, not unlike one might remix a cassette tape. So, a little more than one year after I talked with Zach, I tracked down my lifelong friend Liesl, who nearly 30 years ago made me a cassette mixtape, which came to be one of the most memorable and influential collections of music I ever owned. I haven't had a functioning cassette player for more than a decade now, yet I still keep her creation in my desk at home, and I don't think I could ever throw it out, since that would be akin to, say, burning a treasured travel journal or scrapbook. In order to make sense of what this tape means to me, it's useful to understand that mixtapes were more than simply a way to share music in the 1980s and 1990s. They were, in fact, a vivid, inexpensive form of folk communication that flourished in the final two decades of the 20th century. Trying to comprehend mixtapes in retrospect is a little like making sense of a dead language. As with, say, Latin, you can suss out literal translations, but you won't fully understand the conversation as it played out back in the day. Now, back in the 1980s and 1990s, social networking was an in-real-life undertaking. Music was not uploaded and downloaded. It was passed from person to person. Back in the winter of 1991, I had become fascinated by the idea of what was then called alternative music. But since it was never played on the radio stations outside of major cities at the time, if you lived in a provincial place like I did in that pre-internet era, you had to overcome your introversion and seek out people who could help you. Which is why I sought out Liesl when I was home in Wichita from my junior year of college. At this point, I should probably back up a bit and clarify that mixtapes weren't just about introducing people to new music. Oftentimes, mixtapes weren't curated for other people, but made to create an ambient soundtrack for, say, studying or exercising or taking a road trip. One of the most common uses of mixtapes was to communicate romantic feelings, something John Cusack alludes to in the 2000 movie High Fidelity. Now, the making of a good compilation tape is a very subtle art. Many do's and don'ts. 
First of all, you're using someone else's poetry to express how you feel. This is a delicate thing. As it happens, I didn't go to Liesl's place that winter out of romantic interest. Liesl was a longtime family friend, and she was three years my senior. She felt far cooler than me and far more adult than me. I had no thought of seeking her out as a paramour. I simply sought her out in the same way that one might seek an audience with a guru. Turned out Liesl wasn't much of a help to me when I went to her apartment that December night and asked her about alternative music. Unlike most Midwesterners who might have offered a pragmatic, if understated, reply to my naive curiosity, Liesl was literally struck dumb. Again and again, she would open her mouth as if trying to address my questions, but no words came out. I went home that night feeling faintly humiliated. But a couple months later, a small package bearing Liesl's handwriting appeared in my campus mailbox. Inside was a mixtape she'd entitled Rhonda Rolf, the best answer she wrote to what she couldn't quite explain to me when I'd paid her a visit over Christmas. Liesl hadn't just shared her own music, she'd recruited her boyfriend Michael, a local artist and indie musician, to help her select and sequence the tracks. The danger of putting this much effort into a compilation cassette is that its recipient won't properly appreciate what's on the mixtape, and that certainly happened with me. In asking Liesl for, quote, alternative music, I'd really just been hoping to hear more bands that sounded like Jane's Addiction and Nirvana, bands I already loved and played loud, heavy, melodic, punk-inflected music. What I got instead was a collection that mixed alt-pop tunes with noise rock and party ska with proto-grunge songs. Had Rondo Rolf arrived as a burn CD or MP3 playlist, I might have skipped past the songs that sounded strange to my ears. Since the songs were spooled out on cassette tape, however, I had to sit through artsy tracks from The Fall and the Mekons before I could hear heavy tunes by the Red Hot Chili Peppers or Black Flag. This was, in fact, a charm of listening to mixtapes back then. It was hard to skip around from song to song, and thus you tended to listen to them with a kind of openness and patience that's hard to replicate in the digital era. At the time, I never learned much about many of the songs on Rondo Rolf. I just enjoyed them for how they sounded and how they flowed into and crashed up against each other. The Kansas-born poet Kevin Young, who now serves as the director of the National Museum of African American History in Washington, talks about this aesthetic in his 2012 book, The Gray Album. He says, quote, What I miss in the digital age is the way a mixtape once wasn't just what the original recording artist wanted, but a reordering, a collage of sound and sense. Certain songs from a tape made years ago still make me anticipate the next one. The mixtape means anticipation. I still feel that sense of anticipation when I listen to the songs Liesl and Michael curated for me on Rondo Rolf. And while mixtapes might initially serve as a kind of communication between two or more people, they usually end up becoming one of the ways that you communicate with yourself over the course of many years. Listening to that old mixtape now reminds me exactly what it felt like to be 21 years old and curious about what my life had in store. I talk about this with Liesl and Michael a full 28 winters after they made me that tape. Part of the story we reflect on here is the passage of time and how the music we share with each other has a way of reframing how we remember time's passing. Our conversation took place in my childhood hometown of Wichita, where Liesl works as an art teacher and Michael works as an artist and entrepreneur. You might recall I talked with Michael for my satanic backward masking episode back in season one. We start by sitting down at Michael's dining room table where I show my friends the actual Rondo Rolf mixtape Liesl mailed me nearly three decades before. Let's listen in. As, a, as an extra added bonus, 
Um, this is not Rondo Rolf. That's grunge for golf. <laughs> I asked my friends in, in Oregon what grunge was, and they made me that. But this is Rondo Rolf. Wow, this is the actual tape. This is the actual tape. It has Liesl's painting on the front Yeah, and her writing. I used gouache so the the colors would break in the water and play wow. with that. I had a lot of fun making it. You know what strikes me immediately looking at this list of songs is how strong the ghost of Jake Uecker Yes. Is Jake Uecker, local important cultural figure, uh, DJ from After Midnight, the alternative radio show that was on KMUW for years, and uh, just an important, he was a kind of a rogue renegade uh, concert promoter. He ended up getting bands like Super Chunk and Yola Tango to play at Kirby's Beer Store. This, Yola Tango played at Kirby's I saw Beer Yola Store. Tango at Kirby's Beer Store, which is, for those who don't know, is a room maybe 20 feet square that you could put 60 people in comfortably maybe and yeah and love battery i see here they played there um you know. yeah. he's the one who got me into sonic youth he's the one who got me into the fall you know he turned me on to my ability valentine the mekons like a lot of this music was probably stuff i was learning from him and terry mont who was a producer of after midnight and another local cultural figure who's still contributing to the community here. She works with uh, the River Festival people now for several years. The fall, I can't listen to the fall without thinking about him. No, not at all. Immediately comes to mind. Immediately. And he's no longer alive. No, he passed away seven years ago. Is that right? God. That long? He was 50 years old. I think that underpins one thing we'll probably come back to a lot in this conversation, which is just the role of people in yeah. this ritual of the mixtape. For sure. Because um, I don't know how well you remember this night, Liesl, but it was winter. I was home in 91 for Christmas. And I don't even know why I went to visit. You were living in a house on Waco. I think it was a duplex. Um, and I dropped by. And, and I say in the essay that I sort of approached you as a guru. And that's probably truer than than, <laughs> than you might imagine. That you were like this cool older person. And it's funny that, you know, now that we're adults, we're all basically <laughs> we're the same, same age, age. Right. Right. But at the time you were this cool girl that was three years older than me or a, a woman. Like I sort of saw myself as a boy, yeah. but I saw you as a woman who, um, even though I was in the Pacific Northwest, which was sort of grunge central at that time in history, I felt out of my depth and I wanted to know more about music. And when I asked you what alternative music was, you literally... You open your mouth and nothing came out, right? <laughs> and I sort of thought you were making fun of me, <laughs> but then I think it was just so broad yeah, that yeah. I was lost yeah. on how to speak about it. There's no easy way to sum it up in a soundbite, you know. And I don't think I understood that. That I, I, I wanted a simple answer. And what happened was really touching to me, even at the time, is that I opened up my mailbox in Oregon, like two or three months later, and you had made me a tape that answered my question. That basically, whatever you couldn't articulate that night in December became a project. And we grew up together, but you didn't have to do this. And we're sitting at a table with the actual cassette tape, a cassette tape that, I don't know about you, I can't even play this. I, I literally cannot play this because I don't have a tape deck. I have a cassette deck over there, the one that I had in high school, but it needs to be overhauled before I trust it. <laughs> well, that's it, is that the tape is a technology of such that I'd be afraid... This has since become such a such a treasured object in my life. I'd be afraid that it would eat it. But that's funny. It's, there are certainly artifacts now. Yeah. And there could be some listeners who are of a certain generation for whom this is just sort of history. You right. Know, that they've seen cassette tapes, but it's an abstraction. 
you know, it's it's, well, these it's kids a these days though, cassettes are becoming popular again with a certain yeah. there's a kind of two guys who run record labels and that's all they release. Well, well um, Zach Taylor, who I interviewed, uh, who made the documentary cassette, and I'll probably cut in a lot of his audio in this interview, talks about that. If you watch the documentary cassette, part of it is talking about how bands will sell cassettes at shows now. Uh, and there's a little bit of a revival, not unlike there is a vinyl revival. Yeah. In the course of making this documentary, which took me about six years, really, from start to finish, in the course of those years, I thought, I think it was around 2014 or 15, I thought, oh geez, I better finish this thing, but because it looks like the cassette is, is just really like gonna die any day now. And now here it's 2018 and reports are still coming in that um, sales are, are doubled from last year. And so let's take ourselves back to this moment in 1992 do you remember why you went to the trouble to make me this wonderful tape, Liesl, back in the day? Well, I, I felt like I hadn't adequately responded to you. I think we talked, to, Michael yeah. and I talked about it, and um, and you're important to me, and I wanted to really answer your question in a in a better way with music. Mm. I mean, it was a musical question. I couldn't really explain it in a few lines so you know in that time frame too making a mixtape for somebody wasn't something that was considered like like i did it for a lot you know i made a lot of mixtapes yeah. so it wasn't like this is like this herculean effort this is something you do because you really you want to share something with somebody you know what i mean it's still of course really a special thing but at the time it's like kids today probably wouldn't take the three hours it takes to sit there and like pick it up and get all the levels right and stop and start the deck and everything. You know what I mean? So something we did just out of habit, but I also did it out of love. You know? Yeah. Well, Liesl, these days, Liesl could say, well, Google alternative music or here's some, here's some YouTube videos. Watch this. But right. she didn't have that option. And it's easy to forget that if you lived in a place like Wichita, Kansas, we didn't have K rock, you know, we didn't have an alternative music station. So you had, KKRD, which at the time was pop, um, and then T95, which was classic rock, and you could listen to some newer Van Halen and Rush and stuff. Um, but at the time, the answer to your question, you couldn't, you, in a way, you almost had to make this tape to answer my question because, and I think it's interesting that you asked for Michael's help, and Michael asked Jake Euchre for help, something that I didn't realize until right now. Well, I, I didn't, I don't think I asked him specifically for help, but this is all stuff that he would have just been turning us on to in this time period. You know, like, Michael, you got to hear the fall. I'm totally wired. I'm totally wired. He made me a fall cassette because I was I liked some of their stuff, but they're an abrasive and difficult band to get into. And so he made me specifically a mixtape of songs he thought I would like. You know what I mean? Like these old these people who are older than us were doing this for us too. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, you should hear this. Passing this is like, you need to know about this. And this is like I custom made you this. Like Jake made Jeff Eaton a fall tape that wasn't the same as the fall tape he made me. You know who does that? You know what I mean? That was cultural or cultural curators. You know what I mean? Well, I have a list here too um, of the songs that were on the tape, and there were there were bands that I knew about, like Susie and the Banshees, who I'd seen at Lollapalooza the year before. Um, yeah, and the Pixies, which I 
came to really love not long after this and Black Flag, which I'd heard of without really hearing. Um, and in the fall, it was between Love Battery, which I knew about because they're from the Pacific Northwest. They were a sub pop band. And the, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who were sort of up and coming at the time. Right. Because it was a tape, I had to listen to that fall song. That or fast forward. And it was so inefficient to fast forward through right. a cassette tape. Right. That a great thing about this, and I mentioned in the essay, is that I liked heavy music. I liked Jane's Addiction. I just discovered Jane's Addiction, which yeah. I loved. I just discovered Fugazi, which I loved. Those were the only feet, I, only toes I had in alternative music. The rest of my music was maybe a little bit of Metallica, which is, was sort of alternative-ish then, and then whatever hair metal I was given to by the radio at sure. the time. Um, but because it was a tape and I couldn't fast forward, like the, there's also Elvis Costello and Fishbone on this tape, sure. which are not heavy, but in retrospect are sort of some of my favorite songs from this tape. Uh, Pump It Up by Elvis Costello is oh, just yeah. incredibly appealing. And then Party at Ground Zero uh, by Fishbone is such a window into that time in history. Yeah. It's such a Cold War party song. Yeah. Daddy, go get your gun for the communism in our hemisphere today. Taiwan, go fly your mig for the Yankee imperialists have come to play. And that had this been a, a playlist that I could fast forward through, yeah. I probably would have, you know, bumped from from Love Battery to I see Butthole Surfers, but that song is so weird. Yeah. It was my choice. I remember this. It was a weird choice. What, Kunz? Well, it was a weird choice for what he wanted. It wasn't a really good example. Well, it was experimental. Service, I, right. Um, you could have put, like, Human Cannonball by Butthole Servers on yeah. there, which is, like, a super hard, straight, driving kind of tune. It probably would have been more thematic, but I think this more fits... It fits me. I love that right. song. And, and I think it makes... And I'm a world music yeah. person for yeah. years. Well, and this is why your tape, Liesl, was in education. Because if it was a dude who thought, well, Rolf likes heavy grooves. Yeah. So we'll play a heavy Butthole Surfer song and a heavy Pixie song. Um, and, you know, a, a heavy Red Hot Chili Peppers song. And, 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 but, but I think because you were the sensibility that drove this, I also got all of these other songs that made it truly alternative. You know, that at the time it was alternative. What did alternative even mean? No, uh, that was not commercial radio. Yeah, I guess. Or so in in time, alternative sort of came to be known as grunge, and gr grunge was blowing up in in the winter of ninety one, ninety two. But you gave me alternative tape that had Coons by the Bottle Surface. <laughs> it was a really freaking weird song. Yeah. <laughs> and I've always really liked weird, and I I love it because it is so weird. Yeah, I like strange. it too. Um, it was a fun project for us. Like we were a couple in my apart in our apartment. We were making not just this tape. We made some others. Somewhere over I on still Market have Street. A couple. It was on Market. Oh, man, that's yeah. right. It was. You had on all the Market. light bulbs painted. Yeah, she painted the all the light bulbs in every crazy. different room was painted a different color with like gouache or something. So, like on this room, it'd be this green cast, and you go in the kitchen and be like this orange cast. You know, that could have been the house I visited. Maybe right. you were off someplace that day because it was on Waco or Market. And it, was market. it was Market. For people who don't know this, this is sort of an, an older part of town that 
maybe in the 1920s was sort of a fancy part of town, yeah. but then it's where poor college students were living by the 1990s. Yeah, it's a lot of, it's mostly like what we consider barrio now. Yeah. It's like, you know. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. It's still a beautiful part of town. Yeah, actually. And I lived there as, an, up you know, as a mother since for that. 10 years. Yeah. Close, very close to that apartment. Yeah. It's nicer now than it was then. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So. Yeah, aesthetically too, I think that I was very young. I still sort of considered myself a boy. And here's this house with colored bulbs, you know. <laughs> and, and, I, and I sat at the, at the foot of my childhood friend who I considered cooler than me and asked her about music. Uh, and and then, then this is what I got. And it's funny how, and again, we're sitting here with Rondo Rolf, the actual physical object on the table. And it reminds me of you, Liesl, but it also reminds, reminds me of my, my roommate in college that year, who we listened to this again and again. And he was sort of considered himself alternative in sort of that BMG music club sort of way. Right. Where, and again, if you don't understand this historically, w ways to get music was from the radio, which we, when you lived in a provincial place like we did was not very diverse. No. Record stores. Um, and then uh, after record midnight, clubs. I got a, yep. I got a and plug after midnight, KMEW, Wichita State's. Okay. Radio station yeah. after midnight. That but it was only a few hours. It, it was one show it was, and it was very late. Yeah, and I, yeah. But I was a night owl. It changed my life. Yeah, after midnight. Yeah, and the other one, sort of the nerdy version, was the tape club. Yeah. If you like, my college roommate would get tapes from the the alternative BMG mm -hmm. arm, and that was part of our education. Again, it's it's this pre-internet world that you know younger people. Um, yeah. millennials must just think what are they babbling about but yeah. really if you wanted to know about music you couldn't just go online and look you for had it. to ask somebody or know somebody who knew something right which is exactly why liesel was my guru was sure. that okay liesel liesel will know the answer to this question what about the the craft that went into this um like at what point did you realize that you could use the j card to write down the the, the tracks uh, that's what <laughs> i assumed it was for because it has lines on it yeah yeah you know? I remember being about 14 years old and somebody gave me, they showed me a tape they had with a little, with the little songs written on them. And it just blew me away that that's what that was oh, for. Oh, look at that. It's a ledger. <laughs> I mean, did you guys, when did you guys start like trading homemade tapes or recording off the radio or, oh, or recording? Immediately. Yeah. Immediately. When I got a cassette deck for the first time, it was just one of the little mono portable units where you pull the handle out and it's, lays flat on the table from mm -hmm. Sears or something. I thought I got it for Christmas when I was 10 or whatever. And it must've been 79. It was about my 11th birthday, I guess. And I remember recording my family at Christmas time at a gathering. Mm -hmm. I remember recording the, it was the end of 1979 recording part of the Dick Clark new year's rock and Eve celebration on TV. I remember specifically the village people were playing was it ready for the eighties? It was like one of their hits <laughs> on there. And I was recording that. So I like just, cause I was just recording a little bit of everything just to hear how it sounded on the tape. You know? Sure. And then later I started like, Oh, I could mix songs from this record, put songs from this record on there and then have them all together. You know? So that was pretty early for me in middle school, I guess, probably. In the documentary, Henry Rollins actually talks about that. This is my first ever cassette. And I would make, album tapes with this by putting the tape recorder up to my mother's speaker. I guess this will sound okay. And you hear cars going by, dogs barking. You know, I try and play it on the school bus the next day. You're like, God, this sucks. So this is from like 1970 something. So this is uh, tape one. My little brother tried to 
Tussle tried to mess up my recording, and actually you could hear on it, as we're kind of wrestling around on the floor, like, shut up, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> See, you know, I was trying to do something, and he wanted to kind of goof it up, you know. I, I don't remember when I first started doing that, but I remember something very special. Um, I had been going to Phillips University in Eden, Oklahoma, and I had some friends there. One of my friends had been injured seriously in a mountain climbing fall and was in a coma. And I'd moved out to Arizona from um, Enid, Oklahoma. And I had this friend who already struggled with depression who had grown up with this other guy who was in a coma and he was super depressed. So I made him specific to him and he was a jazz saxophonist and I made him um, a mixtape. I don't remember everything that was on it. Um, but I remember I made it so it would start sad and <laughs> gradually become happy. Uh. And I and I know the final song was the steel drum band that I'd seen in Tempe and bought a tape from them and loved them. They were super joyous. Like they just lifted my soul. And I knew him and his musical interests, he would really like love that. Okay. So yeah. I, oh, in college we would make cassette tapes. Of, a, of us making music. We called it glossolalia and I'd sing and I'd play, a, I'd play pieces of paper or just whatever I could pick up. And they were all musicians and we'd make all this crazy music and we were recording all of the time. So we had that history. Actually, have you heard of the montage of Heck? Yes. Um, mixtape? Yes. Yeah. Um, I didn't know about it until I started researching this it could be the most famous mixtape ever because they made a Nirvana documentary about it, but right. it's actually a mixtape that Kurt Cobain made in 1987. Right. But Liesl sounds sort of like what you were just describing right. in that he doesn't have really 10 minutes more of anything, but he'll have a, a little bit of the Andy Griffith show yeah. and then a little bit of uh, an Olympia beer commercial yeah. and then a little bit of him vomiting into a toilet <laughs> on repeat for like 15 seconds right. and then some Van Halen and... If you listen to it, it's just really unnerving. It's unnerving, but it's it really underscores the genius of Kurt Cobain in a way that it sounds like this underscores the creativity of Liesl Wright. Well, you know, in the early 90s, I was doing, I was collecting records and I collected all these uh, spoken word records of various kinds. And some of them were educational, some of them were self-help records, some of them were like stenography training records so you could listen to them to practice your shorthand or whatever and sound effects and stuff. And you remember those? I had one called Colorless, Tasteless, and Odorless. Yes. <laughs> one of them called Marcy. There's a whole bunch of different ones I made, but it was just like that. I have the one that was, uh, there was a letter called Actual Business Letters Dictated at Various Speeds. <laughs> and it was like, I had this one tape and it started out, Dear Bill, Dear Bill, Dear Bill. And then we go into, you know, dancing, swimming, hiking, rowing. Uh, I just like cookies, pies, and cakes. You know, et cetera, et cetera. It'd be all these various things and sound effects, all just in a weird collage like that. And I don't know. It was, it was a fun process. Not always the easiest to listen to after, but the process of doing it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's almost like the you know, William S. Burroughs cut-up method or something. I have a couple of those actually in this house currently. I have at least one of them. 
I was never that creative. And in fact, I, I was saying how it was maybe about 84, 85 before I realized that what the J card was for, that you could buy a Maxell tape and write down the songs on it. Right. And I literally think that Liesl's tape for me taught me that you could, that mixtapes were a way to share music. That I had owned music before that was just like U2's War album taped in entirety on one side of the cassette yeah. and, and then Pink Floyd's The Wall on the other side. That's funny because the War album came as a factory cassette with the whole album on one side. Really? And then again on the other side. So it's funny you would throw that out as an example. But yeah, but yeah I did that a lot too. You get the C90 or C120 length tapes. Yeah. Go crazy. Yeah. No. Uh, and then Zach Taylor, who directed this documentary, talks about the C90 and the C120 specifically. And if you're making mixtapes, you really have to time your songs. You know, making a tape had to be done not just in real time, but more than that. You had to really pour over the flow, the selection. You had to make sure that, you know, each side of that C60 or that C90 kind of mirrored each other, that there wasn't a big, long gap at the end of uh, the first side. You had to make sure that the song didn't get cut off, you know, as the tape ran out. There's an artistry and a love that goes into mixtapes that's sort of not replicable now. It's the levels too. You have to like adjust the levels, you know, cause like one source material will be louder, quieter than the other. And so you gotta go through with it on pause and let the source play for a minute. It's like, oh, that's gonna peak out a little higher than that last song, I'd take it down a little bit, you know what I mean? Well, also too, if you were if you were if you had a mixtape that you're going to make for somebody with Sunday Bloody Sunday off the U2 tape that you owned, and then a copy of Black Flags Rise Above from a tape that Liesl Wright had given you that itself had been two generations taped <laughs> off of something else, off of a record eventually, then yeah. you had a sound level problem. Yes, right? and I think the texture of a lot of tapes that I received from people that. The deficiencies of that technological form was a part of the the, the album itself, it's part of the aesthetic. And, and because, like you guys, had a a, a Primus song, the Saltington Waltz, that didn't even finish because it was at the end of side yeah. one. Right? <laughs> and, and so, so I often found that, like, I would listen to Black Flag Rise Above, and then Michael Hedges' Aerial Boundaries, I think, was an instrumental. Yes, yeah. So I would just fast forward to the end because I was more into the heavier music and right. then start on the next side with Radio Free Europe, the REM song, right. and then Susie and the Banshees, who I already loved. And so it's, it's funny how that you would have, you really risk losing a song to the listener if it was at the end of a tape and especially if it was cut off, but even if it wasn't as strong as the song before it, then the listener would fast forward and listen to right. their side. I know it's about done. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that would drive me nuts is because I'm kind of anal OCD about this kind of thing. And so I mean, I've had times where I made a mixtape and then at the end, like it cut off, the leader kicked in like a couple seconds before the end of it. And I would just go back and erase the final song. It's like, nope. Right, right. Nope, not happening. Or like dump the levels down to like fade it a little earlier than it actually fades on the source, you know. Well, that's when you could tell when a, when a, when a mixtape wasn't made with love. Um, mm -hmm. When you could tell that somebody would just throw in some songs on a tape yeah. to, to sort of, maybe they were trying to tell you what grunge was or whatever, but they hadn't really put the time in to enhance your listening like experience. It. it was a piece of information instead of a, an actual piece of communication. And I'm sure at some point I made some shoddy mixtapes. Um, you know, Liesl, once you gave me the Rondo Rolf, I went back, I listened to it all these times. I, I came to love the songs that at first I didn't think were very, uh, that were sort of 
confused me. Then, because I was living in the Pacific Northwest, I started making grudge tapes for friends back here or friends in other parts of the country. And I think that it took me a while to get good at my mixtapes. You know, yeah. that, that at first I was just slapping songs on, and then I realized that for them to really enjoy this, you had to think about the leader and the, yeah. you know, the length like, of the songs. Also, how one song flows into the next song. Too, yeah. You know, there's you stack like three songs in a row that are identical in structure or like the same key or the same tempo or the same, you know, hardness and then have three soft ones in a row or whatever that's doesn't do as well as having it kind of ebb and flow, you know, take you on a trip. Um, it's funny how, I guess inevitably this conversation, we, we can talk about it now or we can talk about it later is how different things are now. Oh, yeah. You know, how algorithms predict the way what we listen to. I listen to Pandora all the time, which is great for many reasons. There's... But for a second, I thought you were going to say Pantera, which was going to make me really excited because I listened to Pantera for a while in the 90s. I dislike them intensely. Right. So that's I a, like Pantera. That's a whole other thing. Um, yeah. I used to play in rock clubs with a lot of Pantera fans. It didn't reflect well in the band. Right. But, um, uh, but Pandora you know, uses algorithms to figure out what to feed you next based mm -hmm. on what you programmed in and what you say you like and don't like. Is Spotify similar? It's... Vaguely. I mean, okay. they both work along similar lines. YouTube has been accidentally been that for me mm. um, because I'll go on and I'll listen to a, you know, a breeder's song that I really loved when I was a younger person. Uh, and then they'll throw out a Sonic Youth song. And then eventually it would throw out like New Order songs that I didn't listen to in the 80s, right. but totally reminded me of this certain time of my life. And so, like, YouTube is smarter than me. That basically, New Order influenced Jane's Addiction. Jane's Addiction, I loved. Right. It didn't sound like New Order, but no. it was enough like New Order that somehow YouTube figured out, much in the same way Liesl was my music curator years ago, now it's sort of creepy. YouTube yeah. has figured out what I respond to. Well, what YouTube does is, like, they know what every single person who's, who's signed in and has thumbs up or, you know, liked or disliked a specific thing, they know what else you'd like to dislike. So it's like, oh, well, this pool of people all like Sonic Youth and Venn diagram of about 60% of them also happen to like New Order or whatever. So that's that's enough crossover. We can recommend this New Order tune or whatever. I'm sure it's more finely tuned and complicated than that. But I mean, I think that's kind of the basic gist of it. You know, this data collection is what's really interesting about the modern age. Like I hear people say all the time, oh, I said something out loud and then I saw an ad for it on my Facebook feed. And it's like, I never even said anything. I never typed it into my phone. I never, you know, Googled it or whatever. And so it's like, well, that's, this is the age we're in, you know, I'm, we grew up worrying about, you know, that people are going to put a bug or a wiretap in your house or your phone. And now it's just like, what's that joke? They say, hey, wiretap, what's a good recipe for chocolate chip cookies, <laughs> you know, or whatever. It's just like, we've become so comfortable to our privacy being completely invaded and sold as for profit as, you know, potential advertising data. That it's, it's, it's weird how quickly we got over that as a society. Well, this is our Orwellian future. It's funny that there's a bunch of young Kansas kids who thought that they had discovered this hot new alternative band Nirvana in the winter of 91, yeah. not realizing that it was a Geffen band that was on MTV all the time. Right. <laughs> now it's even more micromanaged that we have algorithms that um, that are pulling our puppet strings, I guess. Right. And We're so from I, Paola to this. Yeah. I know back in the 50s, it was like, you know, the, the promoter or the record company pays the DJs to slip their record on the end of rotation. Nowadays, it's like you don't even have to go, yeah, I have to pay a person to do it. You can do it like a nickel a click or a penny a click or whatever. And I think that's what makes 
um, mixtape so special in retrospect is that it's sort of it's sort of a folk art yeah. that goes past payola and algorithms, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, you make it again, like you say, you make it out of love. You make it because you care about something. You give it yeah. to a girlfriend. You give it to a friend because you're excited to turn them on to something. Uh-huh. You know, you do it as a kind of a art project, just to you know express yourself. It's a way of expression. Or you know? put together a mixtape that you want to hear. I want to hear this string of songs. Yeah. Yeah, while I study or while I dance, because I mean, I I made a lot of mixtapes and then CDs that were for dancing, mm. and um, well, I think you said you had other copies of Rondo Rolf that you sent this to me, but you also had the playlist that you made at other tapes. Or am I misremembering? I made that? some other mixtapes, but I don't think I used I, Rondo Rolf is yours. I don't okay. think I made the same mixtape again. I just made at the same time. I remember I was making some mixtapes for me and somebody else and like it like it inspired me to make some more mixtapes at that time and I I painted them with gouache and you know decorated them like this too. That reminds me and of I, you so hard from the, when I met you too like the swirly colors of the if you can see this cassette cover here on the Rondo Rolf mixtape uh Liesl has painted it purple and deep blues and muted greens and kind of a red rusty color. It's all in like a miasma of organic swirls. And Liesl as an artist has always uh, tended toward organic forms. And so this is like a real, this is proto Liesl art. Well, let's touch on the idea, like in the movie High Fidelity, it's, there's this idea that you make um, mixtapes for people you love. Right. But as we were just talking, you know, sometimes you make mixtapes for yourself yeah. But I remember making mixtapes for a girlfriend in the mid nineties where I sort of wanted to convert her to my way of music. Yeah. They were, they were sort of <laughs> passive aggressive mixtapes, you know, where I thought that coercive, right. Yeah. She, she listened to, to Cat Stevens and the Muppet movie soundtrack. And I thought you really need cooler music. And so in retrospect, it's like, how condescending was it for me to, to send her these, these tapes thinking that it would, you know, make her taste better. So, um, so was this like uh, Liesl, for example? Did you receive or make romantic mixtapes, or was it purely a way of sharing music? Um, I'm sure I did, <laughs> but I'm not remembering it. I don't. We made tapes together. We, yeah. I don't know that we made. You made a couple for yeah. We made an amazing tape for that party we had. Yes. We lived together there at that place that on market. Yeah, and it's just like we're gonna. We should have a big party. We'll have a barbecue. We invited all these people, and there was lots of LSD. Everybody <laughs> was on LSD, and we made this mixtape, and it was a super psychedelic. God, I wish I had that tape now. I remember it had "Love Is More Than Words" by the band Love on it, which was like this seventeen-minute-long song or something. That this oh. makes me want to dig through my cassette. I know. I was just I thinking. I do have it. I have a couple around here. I wish I had them out sitting right in front of me. Now. I mean, I I kind of have them stored, and I yeah. haven't looked at them for a long time, and I should dig that up and find out. But I remember that, being at that party and all the colored light bulbs and everybody was like the back room had the red light bulb on and you go out there and people would be like, whoa, this is too much in here, you know? <laughs> and just coming in in that song, Love is More Than Words, has this guitar solo that's like this super psych- psychedelic free-for-all that goes on for like literally like 10 minutes or more of the song. <laughs> just like It's like you're walking through one of those late 60s like Roger Corman teen exploitation drug movies, you know what I mean? And I think 
one thing that's easy to forget is that before late seventies, early eighties, and then gaining momentum later on, especially when they started having tape to tape uh, recording decks, is that you couldn't curate your own soundtrack. If you wanted to have a party yeah. uh, with LSD in the seventies, you had to have a DJ or something. Yeah, or get up and change records and hope you didn't. Or, or get up and change up, records you know? from song to song. But suddenly, what happened is in especially the eighties, you could design your own party mixtape. Sure. And I know that. This conversation happened. It's funny in retrospect. There's actually a New York Times article about it in 1984 that said mixtapes are going to ruin the rec recording industry. Yeah, yeah. And home there's taping a, in general. Well, yeah. You know, like, come on. They probably didn't say mixtapes. They probably said home taping. Yeah. But basically, suddenly it empowered us, you know, young people sharing music, yeah. um, introducing each other to kinds of music making mixtapes for parties with illegal illicit substances <laughs> right and that that this was a texture of american young american life that didn't really exist until the 80s and 90s where right. suddenly you didn't have the technology correct yeah. yeah who was was it dead kennedy's that put out an album with a blank b-side to encourage you to use it to record something on the other side to help kill the record industry right i can't remember what it was one of those punk rock bands that did that it's funny b-side left blank intentionally so you can record on it I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't remember that, but, um, and I think it's one of those things where if, if you, if you're a kid, you know, what do you care? What's your connection? And a 99 cent Maxell tape, yeah. you know, suddenly is a palette, you know? Um, and, and for me, you know, I recorded sounds around the house and then I realized I could record from the radio. Then I realized that I could record like my dad's records or I could, I like T95, that I could listen to a bunch of, you know, Van Halen and Rush songs, whatever I listened to at the time and, and make music that I would return to. And so I think, you know, now we have young people really live their lives through phones or devices or, or, or stuff. But in a way, that was a revolutionary technology for us as teenagers and 20-somethings is sure. that we had these cassette tapes that we could change our environment with and yep. that we could share music with. Yeah. And I don't know if young people still have this relationship to music as I did, but it felt to me that when I discovered first Jane's Addiction and Fugazi and later the songs off Rondo Rolfe and then the grunge from the Pacific Northwest, it felt like... I was more empowered as a person that I didn't just have to be a consumer of what was handed to me right. music wise or anywhere else in life. And I don't know if that was true or not, but I really felt like I was well, living in a more, more like, active way. You feel like more like a, an art appreciator than a consumer. Yeah. And kids don't have to do that now. Rory, my 15 year old daughter has wonderful taste in music. And of course it started, you know, like, you know, the usual teenage, you know, not teenage, but like when she was like in middle school and a little girl, she liked the pop stuff that was popular. Sure. But she, but the internet has introduced her to all kinds of things, and her musical tastes have just become more and more diverse and profound. And she actually is usually the DJ in the house because I trust her to make a good uh, good choices. And she discovers a lot of new music, and then I do too because I wa I went in there. Who is this? I really like this. Yeah. And we get to talk about music. And, we're not plugged directly right. into like youth scene stuff anymore, you know, which we were both involved in. I mean, she was teaching school. I had owned businesses and worked in media that a lot of young people have participated in and stuff. And uh, so, you know, I would keep my toe dipped in the pool of like what the cool bands were and stuff because people I was around all the time were doing that. 
less so now, you know. So now my eight-year-old, like my kid's about to turn eight, and he just, uh, he's like been turning me on to songs that I've never heard before because kids at school have told him about him. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, did you, you know about the song, It's Raining Tacos? It's raining tacos. all this i've read about this he has all this children's music and it's almost all songs about food and animals it's all very <laughs> silly but uh raining tacos is a jam and my kid turned me on to it. He's second grade well the theme music to this podcast was made by my nephew cedar when he was a senior in high school oh yeah and it's very much influenced by ambient electronica music mm. Um, and so he released an experiment. He didn't even make it for this podcast. He just released an experimental album as a senior. And he goes to a rural high school. Like Wichita is the 50th biggest city in America. Right. He goes to a rural high school in northern Kansas. And because he was of a different generation, he could develop an interest in electronic music and make electronic music as a teenager. So it's funny that we all have relationships with young people that have really engaged um, relationship with music in such a way that Seems weird to us, but we can't really be the uh, the get off my lawn old people yeah. because even though mixtapes don't mean the same to them, um, they are developing their own relationship with music. And one interesting thing about Zachary Taylor, who made this uh, cassette documentary, is that he introduced the guy. He interviews the Dutch guy who invented the cassette. This is something that this guy, you know, he invented it in his thirties, and I came to him to reminisce and to talk about this thing in his late 80s, early 90s. And so I don't think he sees it from the same lens as we do. We don't, you know, he never won over his girlfriend or his wife <laughs> via a mixtape. He, he never recorded his, his band's debut EP on a mixtape. No, he was, he was just trying to come up with the next best thing, uh, the next, you know, the next hot thing. Uh, you know, he, he, he was just tired of the frustrations of, at that time, the open reel tape, reel-to-reel -reel tape. He wanted an easier fix. That's all it was. Um, it's no different than wanting a, a more efficient car or a louder sound system. He just wanted a technological innovation. This guy is, is 90. And he just invented the cassette tape. He didn't fall. He it's was in engineer. his 30s by the time he invented the cassette tape. And so that's a really fun part of that interview that Zat brings up when I interviewed him is that the emotional significance of music is unique to its technological moment. And so Lou Ottens might feel sentimental about the, 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 the LPs he listened to in the Netherlands uh, when he was a teenager. And maybe your kids will have the 2050 version of a podcast where they talk about how weird it was in the year 2020 when they were listening to Spotify and sharing music right. via YouTube or however. And then that will have its own emotional texture. You know, there's, there's, it's strange how there's a technological specificity to our youth. Sure. You know? Oh yeah. My son and I talk about that all the time because we have a mix of technology in this house. Primarily, the music we listen to in the house is off vinyl records. Well, I follow you on Instagram, and 
it's LPs every day. And it's like, heck yeah, I know what's going on at Michael's place. But uh, about a week ago, a young woman I know, I think she's 20 or 21, was in the neighborhood and wanted to stop by because she was killing time because of some family stuff. And I was like, yeah, stop by the house. And I was just listening to records. I don't think she'd ever sat down with like a record cover and just listened quietly to music in her life. And she was just like, this is like a totally different way to listen to music. And I was like, well, this is the way I grew up listening to music. You get the big record. It has big art on it. There's stuff written on it. You sit down and listen to it real loud in front of the stereo. You're not, you know, we didn't have a computer to be doing something else or a phone to be looking at or, you know, we weren't multitasking. We're just like, now it's listening to music time. You know, that was me anyway. And I think that's not uncommon. You know? I think that's one reason why the the cassette was disparaged when it first came out because it wasn't as luxurious as an LP. Yeah. Like how much art can you fit into a, a cassette? You know, you buy U2's War on cassette. It's not like buying it on yeah. on LP. The vinyl seems archival. Yeah, like apparently the CD seemed chintzy too, even though it was flashy. And like new age and like, wow, it's like, this is comes from the future, <laughs> but it was like this big, you know what I mean? It's like, where's the cover? You know, it's like this big, you know, you can't hardly read the lyrics cause they're so tiny in there. And, you know, to me, the CD was not a step up. It did. I mean, they did sound really clear and great. I mean, no doubt about it, but I missed the, the physical artifact being big and something you hold, you know, well, what was gained? What would have happened if we just would have gone from an LP to a CD? What was gained by the technology of the cassette? Well, being able to manipulate it yourself, I think, primarily. Because CD burners didn't come around later. I haven't made a mixed cassette in years, but I still make mixed yeah, CDs from time to time. Missed a lot. Yeah. Well, and also the, the family recordings, the friends' recordings. Yeah. We did that a ton in college. Just like you said, like um, just somebody would throw on a tape and we'd just Good be joking and yeah. listening to music and silly and we would lose we lost all of that i I think too that there's something like with making a mixtape and zach taylor talks about this when i interviewed him that even if the girl you were trying to woo hated your mixtape you put time into that you know (laughs) so that there that there's very much an investment and also in the documentary um henry rollins says the mix cd for the girl you're trying to romance the mix cd is like dry humping a nog high couch the mixed tape where you have sat there thinking all night okay if, if, if i can get this intro just right on the pause i didn't get it i didn't get it in fact i ate the last two seconds of the last song which means i gotta rewind the tape and grab that song again it's four in the morning i have to be up at nine and i'm still making this mixtape because i really want this girl to like me how do I know this? <laughs> what, you think I read this somewhere? No, I lived those mixtapes, man. It was fun to see that Henry Rollins also has an emotional relationship to it. And that I think we all became a part of that community where we were carefully leveling and measuring songs onto tapes as a form of communication, you yeah. know, as a way, even if it's not, I'm in love with you type communication, it's, here's something that might broaden your life. And it's something that took me a long time to make. Um, and in the case of you, Liesl, it's, I took my boyfriend, helped me out. We put all this time into it. I put this art on the, on the case and, and here it is. It's funny, you know, we're talking about mixtapes and then this algorithmically driven music that feels a little bit less organic to us, a little bit less human. I'm sure that there's someone in the 80s who would have come in and thought, 
cassette tapes, whatever happened to just getting out your fiddle and your and yeah. your, your drum, right? It, that in a way, our sentimentality towards this technology is a mediated sentiment. We have a sentimentality towards a certain kind of mediation when it's fairly recent that we have any kind of mediated music and that listening to music would have been bringing your guitar and drums and, yeah. and your flute and playing music. You I know? was just talking about this with the boys the other day. It's like before about 120 years ago, if you heard music, it was because someone was playing it live. There was, and it was never the same way twice. You never... You know, this is how all these song, old songs ended up with so many different versions of lyrics and stuff. Someone would hear it from somebody else, maybe forget half of it and make it up, you know. But it's like you went to go see a symphony orchestra and you sat there and enjoyed it like watching a movie. And then it was over and then there was no music, you know what I mean? Unless you went home or happened to know somebody else who might play some for you. And just think how grossly removed we are from that now. It's just like literally I could pull out my phone and say, well, I won't say it because it'll... It'll come on. But I can say, <laughs> hey, Siri, play Black Sabbath's Paranoid. And they'll be like, okay, here's Black Sabbath's Paranoid. And it'll play it, you know, instantly. Practically, you know, 80% of all commercial music ever is in the Apple library now. So, it's, it's the blessing and curse of our mediated age. <laughs> what would have sort of thrown an old person off with our cassette tapes in the 80s, um, now in this algorithmic age where you were literally afraid to mention a band because your phone would have heard you. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a weird thing. So sort of as we wrap up here, what's the legacy? And if not the legacy, what's your personal feeling towards things like this, you know, towards the cassette technology, which oftentimes is not playable anymore. Well, talking about it has reminded me of so many wonderful times. And I, I think that, like being able to make mixtapes of what I specifically liked and what my friends specifically liked and the people um, that I was making them for um, is something that brings up all kinds of personal memories for me, like that era of my life that I can enjoy now by listening to it. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.